Well, I do want to wish you a happy Easter morning, and uh, we recognize we'll probably continue to, to wrestle with some, some of these news, some of these reports, but um, uh, we pause and catch our breath and, and uh, give thanks uh, for the goodness and the grace of God in this day. I want to begin uh, by dismissing uh, children for Children's Church. They are uh, heading out now uh, to teachers that are eagerly waiting for them. We've been working here through a sermon series leading up to Easter as we reflect on the hope of the resurrection. Uh, this will be our sixth week in that series. We have talked about the way in which the Bible regards the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus together as uh, two parts of the gospel message and regards them as matters of first importance. Recognizing that, we've carved out time in our schedule uh, to spend time thinking about really central resurrection passages. We've talked about all the resurrection means, how it, how it uh, verifies the, uh, the authority and identity of Jesus and shows the, that his sacrifice really does pay the debt for our sin. But also, uh, we've seen over the weeks that Jesus is the first fruits of a resurrection, that we look forward with hope that all who are in Jesus will be raised bodily one day at his return. This changes the way we think about what it means to be people with souls and bodies. Uh, we, we've talked about the way in which the, uh, the power of the resurrection is present, changing us. That the Holy Spirit is poured out by Jesus after his resurrection to empower the church and that God is changing us to be more like him. And finally, last week we saw that, uh, that uh, Jesus, with the authority of the risen Lord, sends his church out, commissions them to go to the nations to proclaim his lordship. Well, many of these themes uh, can kind of come together in one short passage we're looking at today. In this passage, we'll see that the Apostle Paul tells us that the sum of all that God does in our lives, in his salvation, is to bring about the effect that we would know him. And we'll see in this passage many references to the resurrection that God is moving towards us. He has moved towards us in Jesus and that the power of the resurrection is present in our lives for the purpose that we would know him. I'll read from Philippians 3, verses uh, uh, eight, uh, 8 through 11. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. The idea of knowing God is a, uh, such a profound reality that it, in times it feels almost overwhelming to speak of it. Uh, as I was reflecting this week on other great and, and astounding uh, things, things that uh, reveal some of the deep longings of the human heart, I was led to reflect some on uh, an important anniversary that will be happening this summer. In many of the ways it reveals the longings of the human heart. 
Uh, many of you know this summer, in July, will be the 50th anniversary of the lunar landing. 50 years ago, uh, a space program, the Apollo space program, culminated in a successful human, uh, human uh, mission to land on the moon and return. It was an absolutely amazing uh, activity for humans to do, uh, to blast off from the earth, uh, circle into orbit, land on the moon, and come back. And they did it all with computer technology that is less sophisticated than what is in your cell phone, assuming you have a smartphone. It's amazing to think about. You have more computer technology in your pocket than they had 50 years ago when they sent a person into outer space and landed them on the moon. It's impressive. My, my, I was not alive to see it. I was born afterwards. My entire early childhood was, was shaped by this event. Um, I didn't know it at the time. I, I just figured everyone did space stuff all the time. But, but all of my toys were space toys, whether from Star Wars figures to Legos. And the movies and the TV shows that came out in these uh, decade or two around the Apollo missions were, just showed the fascination with American people of, of space. Now, recently we watched the movie Apollo 13, and it highlighted for me the divergence of the longing for space that I grew up with and what actually happened. And as I said, you know, no offense to NASA, it was an amazing mission. But by and large, the moon itself was actually pretty boring. It's a rock in space with dust on it, and they could bring rocks home from it. But the imagination that was spawned by the, the Apollo missions went far beyond a rock in space. The Apollo 13 movie reminds you that less than a year after the first person landed on the moon, they were sending up their third rocket, and nobody cared. Until they, Houston was told they had a problem, and we didn't know if we'd get them back. No one was interested in watching the third landing on the moon. We've been there, we've done that, it's a rock, there's dust, we get it. <laughs> Again, no offense to NASA, it was an amazing project. But the movies I grew up watching, move far beyond a rock in space. They were movies that centered upon the, the deepest longings of the human heart, projected into this unknown region. Uh, the great TV shows and movies that followed of Star Trek and Star Wars showed the realities of different types of characters and beings in space. The, the famous blockbuster movies of this era often focused on an encounter with some sort of extraterrestrial life. The most famous of my childhood, E.T., was about that. But the other movies like uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey, or um, uh, 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 I'm blanking on the other, oh, Close Encounters of a Third Kind, were movies that showed the, the incredible hope and human expectation that maybe we could meet something beyond ourselves. One author wrote, reflecting back on it years later, an author named Gregory Keiko wrote, he said that the movies like A Space Odyssey illustrate how our quest for space is motivated by two contradictory desires. One, a desire for the sublime characterized by a need to encounter something totally other than ourselves. And two, the conflicting desire for a beauty that makes us feel no longer lost in space, but at home. What this author was saying is the things happening in this sort of 
uh, imagination of the American people or the people throughout the world around the space movement was actually a projection of these deep and profound human longings. Space was just the place where those fantasies were carried out. It's a longing to know something beyond ourselves and a longing at the same time. And he said, it seems contradictory to see a beauty that makes us feel at home. Well, friends, as we shift to think about the Bible passage and the text at hand, I would argue that the Bible tells us that in the gospel message, we have the, the, the union of these two deep and profound themes. The theme of knowing something beyond ourselves and the theme of finding a home and a place within that beauty. The Bible explains this to us very easily. It says the reason we have these longings that seem contradictory is that we were made to have them. We were made by a personal God, a, a God who knows us and that can be known. We were made for beauty and we were made to be at home in the universe, but human rebellion has left us on the outside looking in. The human experience is one that's characterized by uh, bomb blasts more often than beauty. We live in a world of brokenness, fallenness, and darkness. We live in a world where death is so often visible and pervasive. It hangs, as the Bible says, like a veil over our experience. And that is why the hope of the resurrection is so powerful. It's in the resurrection that we see a power that's greater than death. We see a hope that comes on the other side of death. And we see a, a, a break in the veil that would separate us from God. Through the hope of the resurrection, we not only can know God, but be known and found at home in Him and with His people. We can know God. That's what Paul says in the passage he says that knowing Christ is of surpassing worth. It's the greatest of all things. It is the, the deepest of our longings. It is the, a, a break in the curtain to see the deep truths behind all, of, all reality. To know Christ. And yet at the same time, the passage will show us that knowing God through Christ is not an easy thing. It can be, experientially for us, a process, a journey that comes with a heavy burden. It threatens us. It changes us. If it were not for the resurrection of Jesus, the weight and the burden of knowing God would be too much. We'll look at three things in the passage. We'll first of all see the, look a little more closely at what Paul regards as the privilege of knowing God through Christ. To know Him, Paul says, is of surpassing worth. And secondly, we'll see something of the burden of a life of knowing God. And then we'll see, third and finally, the power of the resurrection. So first, uh, the privilege of knowing God in Christ. just want to point out in the beginning that uh, know is a word we throw around in a lot of different ways. But in the Bible, it has a very deep and rich meaning. Uh, different words can be translated as know in English. Uh, but what Paul has in mind here is a type of knowing that's not just informational, but relational. In the Bible, the idea of knowing is a relational activity. We don't just know information about someone, but we relate to them, and they know us. We respond to them. We engage with them. 
We might say this sort of thing in English. If there's a, a famous person, you might say, do you know such and such a person? And we might say, well, I know about them, but I don't have their phone number in my phone. I can't call them. And more importantly, they don't know me. Knowing in the Bible is relational. And that's exactly what Paul has in mind here. He speaks of knowing Christ, not just information about Christ, but knowing Christ as a personal being, the, the divine Christ, the risen Lord. And we're reminded immediately of why the resurrection is so important. Paul couldn't know Jesus in this way if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead. He could know information about him, but he couldn't relate to him. But what Paul holds out to us here is the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. Paul says that uh, with the rest of the early church, that Jesus is someone they encountered. The apostles saw Jesus. He was raised up into heaven where he rules and reigns, waiting to return at the conclusion of all things. But in the meantime, he has poured out his Holy Spirit on the church. So Jesus could say, I am with you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the early church would say, Jesus is with us. Jesus is in us as we encounter him through the agency of the Holy Spirit. Paul recognizes that to know Jesus is to know God. This is one of the the first truths that the Christian church taught. That to know Jesus is to see a power that's greater than all that we would have within the created world. In John chapter 14, Jesus said on his last night with his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the way and the truth and the life. You come to the Father through me. I and the Father are one. The book of Hebrews begins with this similar sort of idea. It says Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. To see Jesus and to know Jesus is to know God. That's the message of the church, of those who had been with Jesus and heard his testimony. And that means that to come into contact with Jesus through the Holy Spirit and to know him is to know the power that made the world, the power that sustains the world. It is to know a God who is perfect in his holiness and distinct from his creation. Now, right away, we begin to think of some of the burden that can come with knowing God. The burden that comes from coming into contact with a God who is glorious, who is holy, and to become painfully aware that we are not. It's not particularly what this passage focuses on, though many, many other parts of the Bible do. The whole movement of of Good Friday through Easter, crucifixion to resurrection, centers on this theme that God is holy and we are not. That to come into presence of God and to know Him requires forgiveness of sins. The justice of God demands a sacrifice be made. On Good Friday, we gathered and in darkness, we remember Jesus crucified for us, for his people, that our sin could be paid for, that our sin could be forgiven. This burden is not one we bear. We think of the words of the great song, how great thou art, it says that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing. The burden of our sin was borne by Jesus on the cross. 
something we must know as we think of the goodness and the power and the glory of God. That's not particularly what this passage focuses on. Again, other parts of Philippians would, many parts of the Bible. But in this passage, Paul is focusing on something else. He's focusing on the realities of the Christian life, the realities of knowing God. And even in this passage, he presents to us here the burden of a life of knowing God. The second thing we want to look at as we see it today, Paul regards a life of knowing God is one that can be, in a sense, costly. It was a cost. And Paul speaks of the all-surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. He compares it to the things that he gave up because he came to know Jesus. He gave up a lot. There's several things listed in this passage here. In fact, Paul begins by saying he suffers the loss of all things. Now, if we had a longer time and we did more of the reading and saw a bigger argument in Philippians, we would know what he was talking about because he lists them specifically just a few verses earlier. Paul is someone who grew up in a religious community. It was not one centered on Jesus. And all of the things he attained in that community were given up when he came to faith in Jesus. He was a, the Pharisee of Pharisees. He had all of the right religious credentials. He was so zealous that he thought he should stamp out the Christian faith until he met Jesus. The power of the risen Lord encountered him and his life was changed. And when Paul began to follow Jesus, he lost all that he had before. His credentials didn't count anymore. In fact, he saw them as being meaningless because they were leading him away from Jesus. You think of the relationships that he lost, all of the acquired standing and status Paul lost when he came to fight faith. And he says, I'd gladly trade it. In fact, he says, I count all of those things so important to me before as if they were rubbish, as if they were trash. Not because they were bad in and of themselves, but because Jesus is far more glorious. And, and we see the comparison in the passage, Paul saying, knowing Jesus is worth so much more than anything else. But I, I don't want to move too quickly over the cost and the burden that Paul shows us is characterized in the Christian life. Because he does say, honestly, I lost all things. And as, the, as this little section moves on, he lists two other things that are part of this burden of following Jesus. Paul also begins to, to talk about um, the way in which following Jesus brought suffering into his life. He says, I share in the fellowship of suffering with Jesus. There were actual bad things that happened to Paul because he was following Jesus and on mission, on the mission that Jesus gave him. When Paul would go to a town, he would preach the message and people didn't like it, sometimes they threw stones at him. He was shipwrecked, he was beaten, he suffered. He, at one point he says, I, I, I face the wild animals. We don't know if that's literal or metaphorical, but he suffered because of his faith with Jesus. And third, in the passage, we also speak of a process of becoming, Paul says, I am becoming like Jesus in his death. The Bible teaches that Christians are people that are changed. That's good news. Changed to be more like Jesus. We're changed into something better, but when it describes the process, it uses the imagery 
of the cross. It says the means God will use to change you will often be difficult. Jesus himself, when he invited people to follow him, he, he invited them this way. He said, come with me, pick up your cross and follow. Come and suffer, Jesus said. And together these things, the loss of all things, the gaining of suffering, and the painful transformation constitute a real burden. And we don't want to be dishonest about it. I think sometimes in our eagerness to win people to faith, it's possible for Christians to present all of the joy of the Christian life and none of the difficulty. The Bible doesn't do it. Jesus did the opposite, in fact. He laid out the terms very clearly. He said to those that would follow him, there will be things you have to give up and they will be costly. And so for you sitting here today, many of you can perhaps think of things that either you have given up or that perhaps... God would call you to give up if you were to be a follower of Jesus. We want to be honest about that. And the Bible, again, goes on to say there is a real suffering that is shared as you join yourself to Christ and embrace his mission. In fact, God is even using suffering to change you. Peter tells us in his letter it is necessary for you to be changed. These things are real. And again, they present for us very real aspects of our discipleship. The first thing we notice is that Paul says, knowing Jesus is worth it. Knowing Jesus is worth it. But the second part in our, our third and closing uh, point in the passage that, uh, Jesus, uh, or that Paul tells us about is that not only does God call us to this, but he sustains us in the midst of it. We've been said, it's been said before, we've already noted it this morning, that the, the cross and the resurrection are always bound up in the Christian life. And so as we've seen in this passage, three ways in which Paul describes the difficult burden of walking with Jesus, the burden of knowing God. He also describes the power of the resurrection to meet us in the midst of it. And I believe just as there are three burdens, or three pictures of a burden, there are three ways in which the power of the resurrection is being worked out in the life of those that would follow Jesus. The Bible tells us the resurrection was a historic fact. Jesus was raised from the dead, but it also is a picture of God's renewing power in the life of those that would follow Jesus. Now, what are these three things that, uh, uh, that Paul speaks of in the passage? Uh, first of all, he speaks in verse 9 of a confidence he has in his righteous standing. Verse 9, he says, my desire is that I may gain Christ and be found in him, knowing Christ. And what is the first result of that? That I would have not a righteousness of my own that comes from, my law, from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What Paul tells us here is that being joined to Christ by faith, he has a new standing. His standing is based on not what he has done, his observance of the law, all of his credentials, his religious performance, but through faith in Christ, the righteousness of Jesus, his perfect life is counted to Paul as his righteous standing. 
In a, in a courtroom sense or a legal sense, Paul is regarded as having the right standing of the perfect Savior, Jesus. And Paul knows there is a great confidence in this. Friends, uh, the God that we come to know through the gospel is a God of power and majesty and holiness. And if we do that in our own right standing, it will crush us. In the history of the church, in the history of the world, many people have sought to draw near to God through meticulous self-examination, and self-examination's good, but without the grace and the power of God, we will be crushed under the burden of the holiness of God. Paul sees here a confidence in the righteousness of Jesus that comes through faith in him. This is the good news of the gospel. Second, however, Paul reminds us that we're not alone. Picking up on themes we've talked about in, the, in this whole sermon series. He says he not only wants to know Christ in the fellowship of his suffering, but he wants to know him in the power of his resurrection. To know Jesus is to live experientially in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus being raised into heaven has poured the Spirit out on the church, and this Spirit is active and alive in our community and in our lives. Sometimes the motions are small. The presence can be clouded by our frailty and weakness. But the promise of the resurrection is the power of Jesus, the risen Lord, is now poured out on the church. You're not on your own in this journey of faith, this movement to know God, but God is present with his people, holding them up, empowering them, and sustaining them. Third and finally, there is a, a future hope, the hope of the resurrection. Paul says in verse 11 that he hopes with great confidence, he looks forward to the fact that by any means possible he would attain the resurrection from the dead. Now at first reading that phrase, any means possible, can seem to contradict the confidence he spoke of earlier. I don't think Paul's writing here as if he's uh, unsure of the outcome, as if he's wondering, will Jesus uh, help, you know, raise me from the dead in the last day or not? I think what's uncertain for, the Paul, for Paul is everything that happens between now and then all the means that God will use in his life to continue to shape him, the future uh, course and pathway. You might remember a little earlier, if you've read the book of Philippians earlier in the letter, Paul says, I'm in prison and I'm not sure what's going to happen. I might die or I might live. I'm preparing for both actualities. By any means, whichever it would be, I want to know Jesus, he says. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. Friends, that same hope is our hope as well. We see in Jesus the first fruits of our resurrection from the dead. We, we see and know truly now, but we know in part. Through the resurrection, we come to know God through Jesus. And yet that vision is partial in his letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says it's as if we're looking through a dark glass. We see truly, but we see imperfectly, impartially. And even 
for those Christians who are most mature, perhaps someone like the Apostle, the Apostle Paul who saw the risen Lord Jesus and had heavenly visions of spiritual realities, he still regarded his own sight as being partial and clouded. And yet with this hope, one day we will see him, we will know him, even as right now we are fully seen and known. This is the hope of the resurrection. We do endure often a difficult life. We have great confidence in our standing. We have the power of the Holy Spirit with us. And we have the hope that one day we will know God fully. In conclusion, I return to one of the movies I mentioned in the beginning. A movie that was uh, massively popular in the uh, 1970s, but has received uh, little attention since then, probably. Uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind was Steven Spielberg's uh, first big movie after Jaws. He got tired of the ocean, he moved to space. In that movie, uh, uh, spoiler, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it since 1977, I feel uh, like it's okay to talk about it now. In that movie, uh, a man has... Uh, ultimately is, is, has an encounter with an extraterrestrial life force. In the conclusion of the movie, a, a flying saucer comes down from space, and as all the humans sit around, they now see what Spielberg pictured as the greatest longing of their hearts, to know and encounter something beyond ourselves. Now, everything about the movie is a little dated. That's probably why it doesn't uh, carry over as well today. But in the conclusion of the movie, this man who throughout the movie was sort of haunted by the call of another life, he leaves behind his wife and his child and everything he had ever known, and he steps onto the saucer and goes off into space. I think it was a picture of this deep longing that humans have that in this period of time was associated with the, the space movement. It was particularly interesting to me recently as reading an updated reflection of Steven Spielberg on his own great movie, and he reflected on it years later. He said, I don't think I would have done the ending the same way today. I have children now, Spielberg says. I'm not sure I would leave them behind. He says, now having grown and matured in deeper relationships, I don't know if I would have ended the movie with the man getting on the flying saucer. And it's all made up to begin with, but uh, it's an interesting reflection. Steven Spielberg, on one of his most famous movies, he says, maybe I got the ending wrong. He's wrestling, I think, with this deep sense of longing and wondering how to apply it. He's asking the question, would it have been worth it? It's really what Spielberg is asking of his own movie, in his own life. Would it have been worth it? Would it have been worth that step if I lost everything? And he concludes, honestly, I'm not so sure. His vision is a big one. It's in a sense from the heavens, a heavenly one, so to speak. It's not big enough. I think he realizes that. As fascinated as people were at one point in American history with encounters with powers of another kind, the Apostle Paul tells us there's something bigger. 
the longings of the human heart to know something bigger beyond us and to find a home within it. It's real and it's been put there by the God who made us. And Paul tells us honestly here, it's a costly calling. It does mean leaving things. It does mean suffering. And it means a painful transformation. But Paul says it is worth it. And no one suffered like Paul did. No one, very few of us, have left as much as Paul had, did. And perhaps few of us know Christ as Paul did. And so we hold his words with great confidence, the Spirit working to give us these very words. The surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus is worth it. Friends, perhaps for you today, the idea of stepping out in faith to follow after this invisible God feels something like Spielberg's gambit at the end of his movie. Would you step on and go? Paul says it's worth it. The testimony of the Christian church for hundreds and 2,000 years says it is worth it. The testimony today of a, a young man whose life has been touched by the power of God is to say it is worth it to know Christ. Yes, in the fellowship of his suffering, but in the power of his resurrection and to share in our transformation, even unto death, and the hope that we will be raised with him. Friends, as we stand before these great truths, I, I pray that perhaps once again, your own imagination and hope and longing would be captivated even by these simple words that the Apostle Paul says, I want to know him. Let's close in prayer.